Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by Ditchwich. Proud to support the sport you love. I'm Aaron Martin, and we are at it alone today as Steve Brigman is out of town on assignment. Regardless, we have another exciting episode as FLW angler Randy Blockett will be joining us to offer his advice. And also Lloyd Walker of Excite Baits is on hand to introduce the concept of power shaky head fishing. I can't wait as it's all right here on The Edge. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing better. Oh, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. (laughs) Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? That's full contact fishing right there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. As mentioned, Steve is out on assignment, but uh, I've got to be honest with you. I'm really beginning to doubt the validity of his field assignments. So it's necessary to throw out kind of a, I guess, a disclaimer, if you will, that I take no responsibility for slanderous comments on his behalf. But I do appreciate, however, your diligence in tuning in again this week as we have a lot to cover. And quickly, just a a schedule reminder that the Big Bass Tour in North Texas Bass Classic will be taking place on September 25th and 26th down on Lake Louisville outside of Dallas, Texas. Now, it is both an hourly Big Bass tournament and then also uh, the, the next day is going to be a stringer tournament, so there is plenty of opportunity to win part of that $100,000 purse that Steve and I have talked so much about here over the last several weeks. In addition, all early entries will receive a free pair of $150 pair of Oakley sunglasses. So to find out more, and if that's something that's on your radar screen, I would encourage you to simply log on to Big Bass Tour, and that's B-I-G-B-A-S-S-T-O-U. UR.com. They'll get you hooked up and uh, ready to go. But for those of you that uh, were actually with us last week, you remember that Steve and I was going to hit the water. You know, we talked a lot about the fact that we've kind of had some cooler temperatures, uh, a lot of rain lately, so that's obviously brought in some uh, new oxygenated water. I Got my new Dobbins rods that I ordered and uh, got all those mounted that took quite some time given my anal tendencies of making sure everything is set just right. And uh, we just decided it was it was just time to go out and check the upper parts of the tributaries uh, for this time of year. And first off, let me just get out of the way that before he gets back uh, to the studio and back on with me next week that Steve Brigman really put the hurt on the bass. Now, I would never admit this to him uh, with him present, but it was a day definitely of high numbers and some exciting catches. And I think, you know, when I look back as far as our decision of of why we wanted to go up to the rivers, I think there's a couple things to to point out there. You know, this is the time of year when, when you look at the upper ends of the lake. We're dealing with that thing that's called turnover, okay? And remember what turnover is, and not to get too scientific, but it really involves the lower part of the water column that's below the thermocline, and then you also have the upper part 
of the water column that's uh, above the thermocline. And we all know that you know bass are really uh, tied to the thermocline this time of year based upon comfort, the presence of bait fish. They're there for the very same reasons that obviously that bass are. But um, you know what we really want to focus in on is where are those oxygen-rich waters? Because when that turnover happens, uh, what happens is the oxygen content in the water really stratifies and the fish follow suit. So they start to scatter out. The bait fish kind of start to scatter out. And um, so we really want to try and maximize and go after those high percentage target areas that we talk so often. And quite honestly, you know, up in the river systems, Deep is a relative term, but down on the main lake to where perhaps you might have, um, you know, water that's twice the depth of what it is up the rivers, quite honestly, it just positions the fish and kind of stacks them up on really a little bit easier of a, of a position or a target that, um, that you can go in and really seek out and kind of pick apart with your baits. So... Given the fact that really the bait fish begin migrating, you know, back to the shallows because of what we talk about on here so often, which is photo period, you know, the decrease in the amount of daylight uh, that's happening throughout the course of a 24-hour period, you know, the days are shortening. So therefore, the water is beginning to cool. Also, knowing that we had a lot of influx of of rain coming in, you know, the water came up. Uh, We know that the cooler water is going to hold more oxygen. We also know the fact that uh, the lakes and the Corps of Engineers are likely to create some generation, which again, in the upper extremities of, of the tributaries, you know, that is also going to position fish quite well. So we launched the boat with, you know, I've got to tell you, it looked like we knew absolutely nothing of what was going on because we had 15 rods on the on the deck of, of the boat. And, you know, really a lot of that had to do with we we just hadn't been up there in so long. We wanted to make sure that we were covering all columns uh, of the water column, uh, giving them a variety of bait choices. We knew that predominantly they were going to be keying in on uh, shad. Um, we did have a few jigs tied on because of the presence of crayfish and trying to entice um, you know, those that perhaps would fall prey to the jig. But essentially, we started out with, with topwater, you know, throwing buzz baits and spooks with quite a bit of success. And then, you know, as kind of that daylight and that sun started to peek in and out of the clouds, that topwater bite more or less went away a little bit. And we headed up river as far as our legend boat would take us. And what we figured out was that because of the high water, that the core was actually pulling water and releasing water to actually bring the lake level down, getting ready for some of the fall rains that we're probably going to be expecting, as is customary for this time of year. And we could see actually the water line, the old water line uh, that was holding on some of the bushes and the rocks and the trees and, and all the different things. So we knew that they were dropping this at a fairly quick rate. So we keyed in on points and really bluff ins that were adjacent to flats um, and also look for the presence of a lot of bait fish. And again, these were high percentage areas. Um, anywhere that you can find, you know, a lot of bait, chances are, you know, this time of year, the bass are not going to be too far behind. But what we found was really kind of a, I guess, a little bit shocking. I wasn't anticipating that the bass were going to be as shallow as what they were. You know, they were relating to flooded bushes and laydowns. And um, although we had, you know, limited success on kind of a variety of baits, one bait really stood out in particular. And that was just a a zoom dead ringer that uh, it was in watermelon red. And we had that rigged up on a quarter ounce tungsten weight. And I think that the action of the worm 
and coupled with really the slow fall entice the bass into reacting. Now another noteworthy fact I think that um, needs to be pointed out was that the bass were stacked really in the first 200 feet of the flat. So if you can imagine like a river channel and you know how the river channel curves off the bank and perhaps you have a steeper bank like a bluff and then it goes out into this kind of this flat. And this one in particular um, was about the channel, was approximately about 10 feet and then it went up into about the four to five foot range and eventually made it up to about two feet of water. The bass were really holding in that first 200 feet. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact because they were drawn water a lot of that area that was in that say that one foot range was a structure that normally would not have water over top of it this time of year the bass knew obviously that the water was coming down so they were staging kind of adjacent to that deeper water where they could drop right back off like we've talked so many times right off that ledge up against that river channel and it served not only as a good ambush point for seeking out their prey but also really just served as kind of a current break right on the inside of these channel swings so you know what we saw that with uh, given our success there on kind of these flats as most fishing days do the weather really changed on us and uh, along about midday a uh, front moved in from the north the pressure rose and it literally sent our bite into a tailspin and the bass developed really a, a bad case of lockjaw and um, you know that was really the extent I mean we could not buy a bass bite uh, for the remainder of the afternoon now one final noteworthy item that I do want to point out is is something that hit both of us like a ton of bricks and and when we brought it to each of our attention um, we started talking about this a little bit more and that was the increased activity of the brim that was biting our baits after the front this was something that, you know, we were fishing the same locations prior to when the bass were biting and responding very well. And the bites that we were getting, obviously, were, were all bass because we were catching 99% of those. But when the front came through, I mean, it was like the, the brim just would not leave us alone on the very same baits in the very same area that we were fishing. And I think that was a sure sign that the bass locked up and really that the brim realized they had you know nothing to fear and thus uh, allowing them to become more active and kind of seek out uh, kind of their aggressive nature and uh, go after kind of getting a meal that they didn't have to worry about becoming a meal you know themselves so regardless it was a tremendous learning experience and um, you know it was certainly a day that I think when you coupled the knowledge that we were able to take away uh, given where the bass were positioned what was going on with the water fluctuation and then also the key being with what happened with that weather you know we were really thinking that the bite was going to get better as the day progressed and obviously you know you can't put off a cold front till tomorrow it threw us a curveball uh, we made some minor adjustments and uh, that's how our day ended but uh, it was certainly a lot of fun hey listen I do owe us a break and a word from our sponsors but when we come back we are going to be joining FLW veteran Randy Blockett right after this You've got the truck, you've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. 
the Toe and Stone Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon. Establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. We are back on the edge, and on board with us today is a 24-year veteran of both major tours with earnings over seven figures. The roots he planted in southwest Missouri has afforded him the skill of versatility on all bodies of water in which he launches his boat. He is none other than Randy Blockett. Randy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. Appreciate it. You know, Randy, like a lot of us, you were kind of one of the lucky ones in the fact that you became involved in the outdoors at an early age. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity, Aaron, uh, early on when I was in grade school to uh, do a lot of creek wading. You know, there was a small creek just downhill, down the hill from my mom and dad's house where I spent a lot of time after school and on the weekends uh, wading that creek and, you know, catching black perch and little bass and seeing the crawdads and the minnows swim around. And when I was in grade school, that really gave me a big interest in, you know, just fishing in general, you know, just the water and, and seeing how the whole ecosystem worked and it and it really uh it got me interested in it to to the point where I pursued it further at that point. You know, I moved up from wading that little creek to, you know, sneaking in farm ponds when I was twelve and thirteen years old and and eventually uh mowing enough lawns to get me a little uh aluminum boat where I could start fishing some of the smaller lakes around uh Joplin, Missouri where I grew up at, which sort of um sort of got my interest uh in tournament fishing uh at that point, when I when I started uh, high school, that's when I really started, uh, you know, being interested in following the, the tournament action. So it was sort of a gradual evolution there. Well, and you know, with that kind of that evolution that you speak of, beyond just becoming obviously making you a better angler, there's also a lot of I guess life lessons and skills that you pick up that's outside of just you know rod and reel in hand. Can you talk just briefly about some of those? Yeah, definitely. So the the thing that stuck with me more than anything else is that this little creek that was named Turkey Creek that I used to wade a lot, and I sort of claimed it as my own. I was sort of like the little 12-year-old guardian of this creek, and I remember one day I was fishing down there, and there was a bridge that goes over the creek, and um, a car drove over that bridge and threw a big trash bag full of trash right into the middle of my little creek, and I remember how just really irritated I was by that somebody could actually you know, violate that creek like that. And that got me interested real early on in, in sort of taking care of uh, the water and uh, protecting our environment because it's so special. It was such a, just a therapeutic special place for me, for somebody to come in there and, and uh, actually pollute that. It got me interested at a very early age in sort of taking care of our environment, which um, is a big part of my life today. And that, that, that stuck with me ever since I was a little kid. So um, the main thing that I've really learned about as much time as I've spent outside, because I've, got, I've gotten to fish all over the world, you know, over 200 days a year for close to 30 years now, and it, it just really gives you a chance to appreciate, uh, you know, the natural world that's out there, because so many people never get a get to experience it. They, their feet never get off concrete for weeks at a time, and to, to be able to have a, a occupation where I'm out there in nature and, and you know, seeing the, the cycles of life and the ecosystem, that's that's been a really, really uh, good thing for me my whole life. Well, and, and certainly, of course, this takes us well beyond this conversation. We could do a whole study on this, but my feelings are, you know, those of us that are able to be involved in the outdoors, I, I think uh, the pharmaceutical ro- world would have a run for its money if, if everybody had the opportunity to be able to get 
you know, become involved in that. And, you know, you bring up the environment. And for some reason within the outdoor realm, conservationists or environmentalists um, can carry a little bit of, of negative stigma to it. But the reality of it is that, you know, we as anglers have to step in and take care of it to ensure that it's going to be passed on for future generations. Yeah, it's all about sustainability, and that's the whole thing about it. I, I've always tried to, to lead my life thinking what is going to happen 100 years from now from the actions that I put on here. And I think a lot of people, they tend to be really focused on the here and now and the short-sighted uh, goals that they have in life, and they don't take into consideration what our grandchildren's children are going to experience what we hand down to them. And if, and if they're going to have a chance to wade Turkey Creek like I did when I was 12 years old, we have got to really step in and, and protect these natural resources that we have. And, um, you know, we're just, we're just here taking care of it temporarily to pass it on down. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of kind of the natural resources, you know, one, I know one of your favorite bodies of water uh, is Lake Mead. And I, I've got to ask mm -hmm. the, the question, why the affection for a lake that is, you know, 15 to 1700 miles away from us? Well, I like Lake Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which is nearby in Utah, are my two favorite bodies of water in the country, not really because of the fishing, because the fishing is just sort of average there. It's not like it's outstanding. But the, the surrounding countryside around those two lakes is probably the most, they're probably the two most remote lakes we have in the country as far as where you can actually go out and see no development. You can literally spend days on Lake Powell or in some portions of Lake Mead and never see a boat. And to me, that's that's really special to be able to get out in sort of that purity of, 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 uh, of a water wilderness sort of um, and experience that because all the places we fish, particularly east of the Mississippi River, um, it's just, you know, a zoo as far as, you know, overdevelopment, boat docks, you know, overfishing, overuse. And going to Lake Mead and Lake Powell, it, it gives you a chance to step back and, it's almost like you're fishing 500 years ago, um, and I really like the peace and tranquility of those two bodies of water. It's, it's really a neat experience. Well, and, and it kind of begs for the question, you know, have we gotten away from kind of the roots of, of fishing and the benefits, you know, of, of picking up a rod and a reel and a, and a line, you know, and hitting the creeks? Um, have we somehow commingle that with all the busyness and the chaos that's out there and how do you kind of put yourself in the right mental space to be able to, to deal with that well i can tell you one thing Aaron. I, you know i've i've been a professional angler since 1986 so I, i'm sort of qualified to speak on it a little bit and overall tournament bass fishing competitive bass fishing i don't think it's a real positive thing as far as for your mental state of well-being because there's tr a tremendous amount of emotional highs and lows that go with the sport. There's a lot of internal and, and external stresses that come along with it. And it can be sort of a toxic occupation unless you really step back and, um, you know, get away from that a little bit. Because the competition itself, um, I don't know how healthy it is for us overall as humans. So for me, I, I've got to sort of balance that competitive world that I live in with the natural world and, you know, going back to sort of the float in the creeks and canoes and getting away from the, uh, you know, the external variables that, that make it, that take the fun away from it. Because um, so many of us, we get into fishing because we just love being outside. You know, we love 
you know, the sound of the water and the sun coming up in the morning and, and you know, and, and just the, all the natural things that come with it we have for, you know, ever since humans have been on this planet. And, uh, you know, for me, it's real important to, to be able to get away from that and, and see fishing for what it really is, which is a, a lot, uh, you know, bigger experience other than just, you know, running down the lake 70 miles an hour and jerking 14-inch fish out and hauling them around live well all day long. So it's important for me to enjoy those sunrises and sunsets, and that's why I've always, one probably one of the drawbacks in my fishing careers, I tend to go to great lengths to get away from fishing around crowds or other people because I just do not like to do that. It, there's, it takes away from the, the fun of it. So I've probably taken myself a, away from a lot of fish over the years simply because I look for those areas to, to get to that peace that, you know, experience as a younger kid early on. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for that because obviously, A, first and foremost, it shows up in your results. But secondly, you certainly feel a lot better. And then the other thing about that is, don't you believe that, you know, a lot of the things that you encounter on the water that are above the surface level of the water, maybe it's a loon calling or the gulls diving or the wind change of direction or clouds, you know, all of the that state of awareness, that state of being all play into what's going to happen on the end of your line. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, it, it's so interconnected. Um, you, in order, if you look at most of the really good anglers across the country, um, most of them have a real, real keen awareness for the natural world as far as plants and animals and fish and whatever. Most of them are true outdoors people because they can understand that um, the cycle of life and the flow of life that goes on out there because um, it's all interconnected, whether you try to connect it to weather variables or um, man-made externals, you know, such as fishing pressure, angling pressure, whatever. Um, it, everything's connected from, from, from the minnows in the water to the, you know, to the bass angler pulling the bass out. I mean, everything's got a chain. Everything's got a purpose there. And that's one of the things that I really liked about it. I've, I've always liked nature shows like... When I was a kid, there was that show called The Wild Kingdom, and now there's all types of stuff on the Discovery Channel that really show that um, that whole process, cycle of life, the flow of nature. And to be fishing out there, you get to see that firsthand. You don't have to view it in front of your TV at night. You know, you can see it, um, you know, right in front of your very own eyes. And um, that's one thing that I really, really enjoy about it. One of the, one of my favorite things that I like to do is, is we live on a, pond, a fairly large pond here, and I, I feed the bluegills at night. And when I feed these bluegills, I get to see everything else that goes around with it. You know, the big bluegills, the small bluegills, the turtles that come up and munch on the food, you know, occasional bass that comes up and nails the small bluegills that are feeding on the in and around the bigger ones. And you know, just to just to see how life underneath the water uh, takes place, there's a whole world going on down there that we're unaware of, and that's a big part of the thrill I get out of it. Well, and it's it's absolutely a reality of you know that a lot of us should we just choose to break away and and pause and take that time. I think it's a feeling that's that's pretty hard to to compete with anything else that's out there. You know, and, and absolutely, and kind of taking that I guess a step further, um, most anglers. You know, when we are out on the water, we are looking for for a pattern as our fishing day mm-hmm. 
progresses. Um, what right. is kind of your definition, I guess, of a of a pattern? Well, patterns, um, obviously a pattern is a fishing technique that you can duplicate across the lake that, you know, can be successful all day long or for even multiple days. You know, they can, they can be really complex as far as real basic patterns like fishing points, or they can be patterns that are subtle, patterns within patterns. Say you've, you've uh, discovered a pattern where you're catching fish on a shallow run crankbait on main lake points. Um, that's a pattern. And then the sub-pattern to that Maybe yeah, they're you're catching them on the shallow running crankbait on main lake points, but um, the point has to have some type of deep water fairly close to it. And then on top of that, you have to have the point that has the right water clarity or has the right uh, wind coming in on it. Or there may be a window of the time of the day as far as the sunlight has to be at a certain angle with on that point. So there's there's always little subtle sub patterns that are in play over the main pattern. And that's usually what happens if there's somebody that's doing well fishing a pattern, they usually discover those sub-patterns that are going on, which can be many. I mean, they can change during the day, um, and it's it's really the angler that's aware of that and capitalizes on it at the particular time it's occurring that's uh, really successful at it. And patterns anymore, it's very hard to do well fishing on a public body of water, fishing a pattern, simply because the fishing pressure itself that's on public waters are not conducive to patterns. That's why you see people doing well in the tournament environment or just weekend fishing, mainly on, on areas. They get into an area, saturate the area with multiple lures, multiple angles, techniques, and that's that's why they do well. But um, uh, you can do well either or, and um, you know most good patterns are the ones that have little subtle things that go with them. You know, and, and speaking of that uh, elaboration on a pattern, you know, it's often said that there are kind of three phases, you know, to a pattern being first kind of the experimental phase, the development, and then more or less the expansion. Um, let's break down kind of each one of these as far as what goes into that. You know, this time of year, as you're experimenting, trying to develop the pattern, what what are you looking for uh, that has to come into place to know that, hey, I'm going to go to the next next phase or the next step of being able to expand on and look for uh, more signs along that that same line. Yeah, the, the first coming from a tournament mentality like I do, it's a little bit different than if you're a, a recreational viewpoint. But in, from a tournament mentality, the only patterns that I'm really concerned about are the ones that I feel that have the potential to hold up over a course of, a, of anywhere between three to six days on a body of water. And if, if I find a pattern that is generated specifically by conditions that are upon us that particular day, whether it be cloud conditions, wind, or whatever, that doesn't interest me as much as something that I look for long-term sustainability within the pattern. So that's the first thing that I look for is something, a, a pattern or an area that will hold up under a variety of different uh, weather conditions and fishing pressure conditions because, um, to me, a pattern... The biggest challenge to a pattern holding up is, number one, weather closely followed by fishing pressure because I think fishing pressure has just as big of an impact on fishing and patterns as weather does. So those are the two things that I'm trying to consider the, the first when I first get on the water. And then beyond that, as far as as that develops, once you find that area or that particular technique that you're utilizing, do you then try and develop that more and more uh, with offering, you know, numerous baits or different angles or things along those lines? 
yeah, you know, once once I do have a pattern going that I think you know has potential to hold up, that's when I start. I'll start sort of modifying that a little bit and trying to look for more details within that. And when I'm looking for details, there's several different things to consider there. The, obviously, I don't have a control over the over the uh, the weather conditions or the, uh, the the fishing pressure that comes there. The only thing that I really have control with is how I manage that particular pattern. So I'm looking for ways that I can maximize that pattern, and the maximization usually comes with determining how many different techniques will work on that pattern. You know, the first thing I have to do in that pattern is I have to determine, does this pattern, is it going to work on chasing fish or non-chasers? And what I mean by that is a chasing fish is usually something that's going to hit a moving bait, crankbait, spinnerbait, whatever like that, where a a non-chasing fish, you're going to have to slow down with a drop shot or a jig or a shaky head or a worm, something like that. So I have to determine the personality of the fish within that pattern to, to enable me to figure out the, the, the possibilities of technique. And once I figure those, those, that, the technique out then, that's when I can work on like casting angles in a particular area or time of day, um, different things that I control with that. And once I figure out you know, the techniques that they want, the, the best time of day to be there, um, then I can start incorporating some of those weather patterns that, that come about hour by hour, like wind speed, sunlight angle, and that type of stuff. It, it's not as complicated as what I'm, I'm making it sound um, because it usually unfolds pretty naturally. Um, but that's usually my process on the first two parts of that. One of the things that you did point out is some of that obviously has to take place you know, while you're on the water because of those changing variables. That's the best time. I mean, if you can, the best time to do that is on the water, particularly during during the time that it means the most. I mean, if you can uncover something that's current, that's usually when you can really, really take advantage of a pattern. Um, And that's something that's, the the chances, the the opportunities to to do that are pretty rare because a lot of times, we get locked into how we caught fish on a certain pattern with, you know, with what we're looking for specifically the bait and that type of stuff. And we get locked in and focused on it too much. And um, all of us are guilty of that. And it's really the anglers that can really um, overcome that complacency and that need to do something that worked yesterday or even an hour before. Those are the, the anglers that usually come out, uh, you know, at the, you know, ahead on a long-term basis. Well, I would second that because I've been there myself numerous times. But, Randy, we are almost out of time. But in closing and before we get out of here, you know, here we are the first part of September. What do we need to have tied on um, just given the time of year that we find ourselves? Well, like I said, this is the time of year. It's a little bit tough, um, but also the fish start to move shallower this time of year. Um, You know, with the thermocline sort of, you know, dissipating and, uh, you know, the less the need for them to suspend is a little bit less. They tend to get a little shallower. So, I would suggest looking for the dirtiest water on the body water you can fish and fishing some type of small shad pattern crankbait is an excellent choice. Dirty water shad pattern crankbaits or maybe some finesse flipping like finesse jigs or small worms, something like that. Small quarter, eight ounce buzz baits and little spinner baits. And um, that would be my number one suggestion. Go to the back of the creeks, the river arms and look for that dirty water and fish those small shad baits. Well, there you have it, and there you are, straight from the man himself. Randy, we are out of time, but hey, thank you so much for being part of The Edge and wish you the best of luck in the future and look forward to doing this again. Power. Productivity. Speed. 
It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump grinder. And tool carrier ever made. The Zahn. The revolution is here. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hi, this is Jim Tut, and you're listening to The Edge. Welcome back. You know, having that conversation with Randy really reminded me of the responsibility that we have as anglers and, and really just outdoorsmen to ensure that the sustainability of our natural resources and really our duty to pass those opportunities on to future generations. Because if you think about it and if you break it down, I'm sure all of us that were introduced to the sport, we had that person that stepped in. And I'm sure in my case, you know, I've, I've had several people that stepped in along the way, not only taught me about how to catch bass, but also the importance, you know, of taking care of the environment, sustainability, water quality, bass, you know, even if you're practicing catch and release just on and on and on so randy hats off and you know thank you so much uh, for that reminder another of his topics that got me thinking is the effect that fishing competitively has on really our nervous system our bodies and, and also our thought process you know because obviously we know that all of those things are connected like he had mentioned you know the the need of, of burning 3000 calories a day and if you're not filled up you know nutritionally um, that wears on you physically which ultimately goes into uh, your mental capacity of being able to make decisions and that was really the whole reason I sought out Dr. Jay McNamara and his services a few years back was due to the fact of the stresses that competitive fishing you know placed on my body and mind that wasn't normally the case during a recreational trip perhaps by myself with with my dad um, and just you know being able to take the same results and the reasons and then the notice of what I was noticing out there on the water you know the subtle clues that were given from nature maybe a wind direction change what the gulls are doing uh, you know cloud cover coming about but I wanted to make sure that those could then transfer over um, into a, a day of, of competition. And I don't think we should ever lose sight of why we are drawn to the sport of fishing. And it's about it's that engaging, it's that participation in nature, and seeing all the other things that's taking place out there. So enough of that. I'll get off my soapbox, and I'm sure Steve Brigman would pay patting me on the back for those comments but uh, regardless it's true with that being said Randy's comments really tie in with this week's listener question and it is from Nate in New Britain Connecticut and Nate's comment is this is my first year of tournament fishing and I'll be fishing my first river tournament coming up what advice would you have to offer for a non-boater who has never fished for bass on a river system? We will be spending time in and out of the main river system in the coves and also on the main river system itself. First off, Nate, uh, thanks for sending in the question, but I suggest purchasing a copy of Dr. J. McNamara's book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, for the very reasons that Randy mentioned above. He really dives off into all of the um, psychology 
that goes into a day on the water and that could be just a recreational day as well he gives you some guidance of some things to do of setting goals of equipment all of those types of things and I think that is just a must-have for every angler beyond that I suggest doing some advanced research uh, via the internet and also some map study on what uh, is historically worked for the time of year that you will be fishing compare what you're finding out on the internet and also maybe in some of the publications that you're looking at and look at the areas of the lake because a lot of times those will be mentioning um, the particular areas where the fish are coming from then take the seasonal patterns into consideration for the time of year you know consider current generation as this will likely position the fish differently than in slack water much like I had mentioned earlier kind of on on our fishing trip this past weekend of going up into some of the upper tributaries the reason there take some of that information you know the bluff ends the flats adjacent to deep water you know what's going on with the current generation have they had rain have they not had rain look at some of those things if the tournament is right around the corner you know and I'm assuming it's probably going to be there in the northeast close to your home state you know know that the fish are going to be feeding heavy and they're going to be stocking up for the winter uh, because of the, sh the, the coolness that you guys have as compared to the south that's not necessarily present there but they are going to be going into a feeding binge uh, as they stock up on bait for the winter and look at that you know that's another thing to take into consideration is the bait source that is most prevalent in that particular body of water I suggest you know obviously making sure you have a top water uh, tied on of some kind whether that be some sort of a spook or a sammy or buzz bait or a frog if there's vegetation certainly you know a jerk bait uh, working those those ledges those grass lines uh, things like that if you have smallmouth we all know how that uh, smallmouth love to respond to that erratic action of a jerk bait you know for some of your bottom feeding type I would go with the shaky head and obviously a jig and then also you know you just got to throw in kind of the other parts of the water column which is going to bring in a spinner bait and a crankbait and finally since you're fishing from the back of the boat make sure to mix it up both in your bait selection as well as the targets that you're throwing to as compared to the angler in the front because you know why uh, limit yourself get outside of the box obviously that I think is something that you hear numerous times from all anglers that fish from the back of the boat is keep that selection broad and then also make sure that uh, you're throwing in water that hasn't necessarily been targeted by the angler in the front so I hope this helps and be sure to let us know how it goes we are due for a final break, but when we come back, we'll have Lloyd Walker of Excite Baits on the topic of power shaky head fishing right after this. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Pete Gluzek, and thanks for listening to The Edge. With us today is an individual whose company is responsible for cornering the phrase 
Power Shaky Head Fishing. It is Lloyd Walker of Excite Baits. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Hey, it's a pleasure. You know, kind of with that introduction in the term Power Shaky Head Fishing, first off, you know, isn't that somewhat of a, an oxymoron, I guess, in, in the <laughs> the vocabulary of most anglers? It kind of is. We, you know, we're from Texas, so we, we fish a lot of big worms, and uh, we do a lot of deep fishing here as well. And we wanted a way to get down to, you know, deep depths and be able to stand a, a worm upright and, um, you know, present it just like you would a regular shaky head, but just in a much bigger profile. So perhaps, you know, let's set the stage here and, and describe what exactly are we talking about when we kind of, uh, you know, mention that word power shaky head fishing. It's fishing uh, a big stand-up shaky head with a, a, a really large uh, six-aught hook and large worms. Well, you, you know, as, as I kind of think about that, I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a six-aught hook, okay? And, and you know, I'm picturing I, I use a lot of six-aught hooks, which I'm sure you do too. And I understand that, you know, Texas is, is a state. It's a big state, and it's where you guys like to do things on a grand scale. But, you know, I, I've seen this product, and, you know, first off, uh, congratulations, because it it's one of the, almost one of those deals to where I look at and, like, it absolutely has to work. But when I tie that back into some of the waters that I I use or employ shaky head on, you know, I'm thinking a two-odd, three-odd hook, but it, it makes sense of why this would work. Can you describe kind of what the circumstances are uh, that anglers are looking for and having success, you know, with this big hook, with this, you know, I think three to three-eighths to five-eighths ounce weight that's, you know, on the end of the shaky head? Well, across the country, you know, there's these, these, these lakes are getting very high pressure, and lakes where you can put uh, brush piles out in 15 to 20 foot, um, that you're allowed to do it on those lakes. You're able to fish this X-Lock shaky head right down in, into those uh, brush piles, and it's designed where it'll go down through it, it'll come back out, you don't lose a whole bunch of them. You know, so you can fish it that way or around it, uh, just like you would a regular shaky head, but it's, it's heavy enough where you can still feel the bottom and shake it just like you would a, a regular lightweight shaky head. Because it, at first glance, you know, really you know, you think of the six-odd hook, but the head of it is designed just like a stand-up shaky head. It has the, uh, you know, the the bait um, lock on it, I guess, the spring that protrudes, you know, from the head uh, of which you can screw, you know, the big worm on like you're you're talking about here. That's got to make sense for these type of applications that you're describing. It, it does. And, you know, one of the big complaints we've, we've heard for a long time is uh, regular shaky head, you tend to lose or don't get the good hookups that you need. And that's the reason because of the, the distance between the, the uh, screw lock and the point of the hook. Um, you fish like a 2-aught or a 3-aught type of hook, there's not much distance between there, so your hookup ratios go down. But with a 6-aught, there's plenty of room there to get your good hook set to it, so you won't miss very many fish with it. Well, and, and with the combination of the X-lock uh, that you came out with, which is kind of the, the Excite Bait signature head design, um, along with the size of the hook and then also the weight, you're pairing that up with like a 10 or a 10 and a half inch, like maximus, you know, worm. Is that correct? We are. It's a 10 and a half inch. It looks like a big trick worm on steroids. It's, it's very large. And we, we inject all of our baits with no salt, which means they float. So we designed the X-lock. So if it did end up falling over, that 
big piece of plastic will pull it right back up into the upright position again. So really we have two things going on there. Not only is it's the design of the head of the traditional shaky head in, in a stand-up version, but then because of the bait not having, having any salt added to it, um, essentially it's going to kind of act as a backup, if you will, uh, to ensure that that bait is standing in the upright position. Absolutely. Yes, it does. Is this a technique that is, you know, limited to maybe just the geographic region of Texas or a particular situation? Or are you seeing, you know, really this being embraced across the country? Well, that's a great question because we thought about that when we first started thinking about the, you know, coming out with this X-Lock. And, uh, you know, you take the typical water such as Mexico, Texas, California, Florida, and obviously those are big markets, but the Midwest and, you know, the Alabama area, Tennessee, those are great fishing areas too. And I was a little worried when we first came out with it that it would only sell in the big bass, you know, areas, the, you know, the Californias and Texas. But what we're finding is, is that it's really spreading across the country. And people that usually wouldn't use a big worm are now having no hesitation at all to throw it. And they're getting bit on it. Well, and, and that's kind of my thought too, is from the standpoint, you know, you think of all the talk and really the shaky head coming into vogue, you know, of, of all the, the fish that it's caught down through the last several years. Um, you know, it, it's no secret that bigger baits attract you know, really a lot of times a bigger bite. And I could see this in situations across the country, you know, perhaps if you're out recreational fishing and you've done well, or maybe even in a tournament situation and it's time to, hey, you know, I want to upgrade. I want to try and go after that big bite. This is going to be something that's really going to help put you in the driver's seat. It is. That kicker fish is, is what you're looking for, you know, is to maybe call up or, and that's when you put on one of the X-Lock and, a, you know, a big one like the Maximus. You're going to catch big fish with this. We'll get an occasional smaller fish, but uh, usually the fish that we end up catching with is pretty good size. Well, and, you know, which leads me to my next question. What type of terminal tackle, meaning like, you know, line size, line type, you know, rod, et cetera, is being used on, on this particular technique? I typically use about a 17-pound test. You know, it's a 5-8-ounce weight, so it's fairly heavy. So I use a 17-pound test fluorocarbon, a medium-heavy uh, type of rod. I, I use a fast reel to it, too, like 7.1, you know, something like that to pick up the line very quickly. With kind of that being used, I'm, I'm comparing that to perhaps like my application with a football jig, you know, to where you're throwing like a big three-quarter ounce, you know, five-eighths ounce football jig on these some of these ledges like on Kentucky Lake or fishing tree rows or something like that. And we all know that a straight tail worm, you know, the advantage is there instead of having a curly tail, you know, it's going to go down on that shaky head kind of in a spiraling action. You know, going to look like something dead that's falling down through the water column. So you're going to get that reaction strike on the way down, but then also just the ability to be able to maybe throw that into kind of a vegetation edge or in the center of a brush pile and sit there and just work that like a normal shaky head, enticing the fish to come and pick that up. That's right. You know, we didn't even think about a lot of the ledge fishing that the rest of the country has to offer. And we started placing, some, you know, getting stores signed up around the Kentucky area, Illinois, Missouri, and uh, it just really exploded on the Kentucky Lake. We have a guy down there that uses our baits, and uh, he does very, very well on it. And it wasn't even an approach. We're learning new stuff about it every day. I didn't even think about ledge fishing with it, you know, because we don't have a lot of ledges here. Well, sure. And, you know, I think ledges can often, too, be kind of a, uh, you know, relative term. You get on the side of a creek channel, and maybe it's only a ledge of a couple feet or something like that. You know, it's still going to be applicable. 
unfortunately, we, we have kind of reached the end of our time here, but before we get out of here, how can our listeners find out more information concerning, you know, the X-Lock and the Maximus worm that's designed to go on the end of that? Uh, you can visit our website at www.excitebaits.com. That's spelled with an X. C-I-T-E. Very good, and you know something. Something certainly, Lloyd, that I'm pretty excited about, and I can't wait to uh, get it out on the water and try it a little more myself. In the interim, wish you the best of luck both on and off the water, and uh, thanks so much for taking time to be with us here on the Edge. Aaron, I enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Well, that is it for today, but before we go, we do have a prize winner this week. Ronnie from Perry, Oklahoma, receives a Fishing on the Edge shirt, a Bass Edge cap, and a Bass Edge decal. So congratulations goes out to Ronnie. Don't forget to send in your questions and prize entries by simply going to BassEdge.com. In the meantime, be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, seen on the World Fishing Network each and every day, and also on Wild TV in Canada. And for the latest tips from the top pros, be sure to check out our full lineup of stories and video tips on BassEdge.com. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin, and for the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.